Father in heaven, would it be in this moment, as we go to your word, that you would open up our hearts, that you would abide in us. At the end of the day, it would not just be that we knew God was here, but that he was in us. We leave different than we came. In the name of Jesus, amen. I've got to tell you, it's just because when you win, you've got, you got to tell everyone. When you win, when you're chosen as a winner, you've got to tell. It's just, it wells up inside of us. Last Sunday, my family slid off for an hour or two to the first annual kite festival in Loveland. Kite festival. That's the, the little plastic paper things we t- attach to strings and fly in the sky. The, whoever the organizers were did a great job spreading out organizations with booths and just giveaways. You got as many free pens and free chapsticks as you could ever want in your life at this kite festival. Kites flying. Whenever there was a gust of wind, it wasn't, it wasn't all that windy last Sunday. And so whenever there was a gust, yeah, there would go from three struggling kites to about 60 or 70 kites in the air. Uh, many of the kites were led by parents running around an open field trying to get their kids' kite to stay. But it was worth <laughs> worth it. Well, we're at some of these little tents, booths, and uh, we're signing up, my kids and I, we're signing up for any free, free thing they've got, and uh, it's offered. Hey, you want to you put your name in this bucket? Put your name in this bucket, we're going to draw, and we're going to give a prize, all right? So we wrote our name and our contact information, and then the next day, I got the communication. You, you dear sir, you are the winner. We'll drop it by, and they slid by campus later that day and, and dropped off my, my winnings. It is a Nest Mini, a Google, uh, I guess it's the Alexa, or the Google version of Alexa. So I won. All right. It's a hard-to-impress kind of group. <laughs> I'll put it in my, (laughs) I'm going to bag it up and take it. (laughs) Never mind about that. (laughs) I thought it was special. I mean, how many of you got chosen out of a lottery bucket for a prize this week? Exactly, exactly, none of you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) If you had been, you would recognize, you would realize the, the joy and the privilege and the, just the, the moment which you get the, the, the note, you are the winner. Whether it's a $40 gift or a new car, come on, there's something that just to be chosen. Hey, let's just, let's just take it back to the fifth grade playground. You're on that side. I pick you. You're on my team. I pick you. You're on my team. And as that group narrows down, there is an ominous feeling in every sensitive heart. Who's going to be left? Who's going to be the last? I think we should do away with it. Being chosen is something valuable. We love to be chosen. My my little sister got married before I did. My little sister said to me when she got married, she said, ah, there's just something about, about every day knowing that you were chosen. It's a security. You were chosen. Forever, you're chosen. 
John Ortberg, in his book, Love Beyond Reason, says, to be loved means to be chosen. So it is. When, when love is declared, when, when, when you say to someone else, I love you, there is communicated a sense of chosenness. Love chooses. And love makes us chosen. Paul raises his hand in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 and says, In him, in Christ Jesus, we were also chosen. That is through the sacrifice of the Son of God. He chose us. That's how he had to choose us. Because of the conf conflict and the great controversy and this, this sense this argument that was made by the fallen Satan, Lucifer, that you are not in fact chosen. You are nothing but a, a little robot. That you are loved when you are forced to obey and support God. When you make God feel important, well, then he, not at all. So God emptied himself. said, I will show you that you are chosen by giving everything to you. Heaven could give nothing better, nothing more. When Paul says, in him we were chosen, it was because of Jesus, the expense that he paid, because of John 3.16, because of his love for the world that the Father sent his Son. But where does, where does love come from? Where does that choosing come from? Oh, every one of us want to believe that it comes from the depths of someone's heart, that their heart chooses us. When I say to my wife, I love you, it is to say, I choose you again. I choose you again. And she must know that it is my heart. Listen. There are several of us men this morning that are crying the blues because our wives escaped to a, a little retreat, which less, left us in charge of the, of the house, which is like leaving Barney Fife in charge of the sheriff's station. You know, it doesn't really work out real well. But when, when, when I say to my wife, I love you, she wants to know that that was a, she must know that it's a heart choice, not a choice of convenience. Sweetie, I, love, I choose you because, man, getting the kids up and ready for church today was not as much fun. It was too much work. She has to know that it's more than the convenience, more than a business transaction. It has to be more. And so when, when Paul says, he chose you in Christ, you were chosen. It was not a business transaction or one of convenience, but one of absolute sacrifice coming from the very heart, the depths of the heart of God. Where is that heart? What is that heart? Come on, I'm going to put C.S. I'm going to keep putting C.S. Lewis's line up here. Well, which was echoed by John Cooper and Peter Hubbard. The heart is the hidden control center. God, the, the very depths of God, yearned for us. He chose us. He said, "I've, I've, I've I love you. I've, I." I want you. I choose you. You're the winner. 
in heaven's little bucket lottery. He chooses you. And you, and you, and you, and me. The entirety of Scripture then. The entirety of Scripture from Genesis to the very end is about God's heart seeking the heart of those whom He's chosen. I don't think we get it. And that's why I'm going to keep repeating some of these lines. All fall. I don't think we get how vitally important, how big this is to God. His heart seeking our heart. Solomon put it as clear as anyone could. Hey, guard your heart. For from your heart, everything comes from it. Proverbs chapter 4. That's just not your heart. That's not just my heart. This, God himself is not exempt from this. His heart is the control center of his being. What his heart is, is who he is. So God himself in his instruction and his plea for our heart, he himself has a heart that craves you and I. Ah. All of this must give us pause then when Jesus points at the heart as being the greatest commandment. The heart. The greatest commandment. The heart. It comes in a conversation, a series of attacks from the, from the community there, the religious leaders, as it were, uh, attacking Jesus' stance on civil authority, his, uh, his teaching on the resurrection. And then it comes to, the, they're trying to trip him. What is the greatest commandment? Come on, what is the greatest commandment? If you're, if you're going to pick one, what is the greatest? And they think they've got him in a bind because he's going to pick one that then says, well, these aren't so important. They think they have him like a like asking a parent, what is your what is your favorite kid? It's an impossible question. Unless, of course, you only have one. So Jesus answers. We are in, in Matthew 22 last week, and now we're going to go to Mark 12. So grab your Bibles. You didn't bring a Bible, got a pew Bible right in front of you. Grab a Bible. Mark 12. Mark 12 is just the, the parallel passage to Matthew. Here in verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He decided to say, hey, here's my point. Here's my moment to, to, to get center stage and to be known as a, as a great thinker. So he says, hey, Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? I love how Mark puts his question because that's exactly what the, Lord, the, the, the specialist here, the teacher, was trying to do. Of all the commandments... Of all the things we talk about, of all the things we say to do or not to do on this campus, God, what's the greatest? Jesus, what's the greatest? Mark chapter 12 and verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he begins to recite something that everyone in his audience would know. Matter of fact, they recited it morning and evening. Orthodox Jews still do. The Shema, Deuteronomy. Jesus begins to quote Deuteronomy from the books of Moses. It is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, the Lord is one. And then he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is it. Heaven puts all of its eggs in one basket. This is it. And Jesus implores the strongest language possible, the greatest. That, of course, was, was what they always, you, you remember his disciples, they were always pursuing, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? What's the greatest? They wanted to know. They listed things in order, in a, in a pecking order sort of way. So Jesus takes that thinking and applies it to this and says, there is nothing that touches this that you become one with your God, a heart to heart with your God. There is no stronger language that Jesus could have used in that moment to communicate the great separation. This is the one thing, the one thing. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But then he throws in, and by the way, your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't include the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 6, but I'm going to put it on the screen for you because every listener would have known. Every listener would have known. Ah, the Lord, hear, O Israel. Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. But every, every listener would have kept going in their minds. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Where are they? To be in your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. How do they get onto the heart? Parents, how do we get this into the depths of our being? How does this become all that it ought to be? We ought to teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, you, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You can't see anything except you see through that. Oh, oh, I wish we could just linger there. Frontless between your eyes. You see everyone and everything through the lenses of your love and your heart relationship with God. It changes the world. It doesn't change the world. It changes your perspective. And perspective is reality. Oh, if we would wear these glasses more often. Oh, beloved. We would save ourselves and others from so much hurt and heartache from so much disagreement. But do you see, do you see where, where Jesus is going with this? This has to be the all-consuming. And we talked last week. Some of you weren't here. That's all right. Welcome back. We talked last week that this has to be consuming. Hey, when you sit down, talk about it. When you walk, talk about it. When you lie down, talk about it. Put it as a front loop right between your eyes so that you can't see anything without seeing through the vision of your relationship, your all-consuming commitment to God. Bind them. Bind them on your hands. But what is this about? Some controlling God? No, no, no. This is about being chosen. This is about being chosen. We are knee-jerk reactive to this idea. Ooh, you want to tell me to do something? You are trying to control. You're bad. You tell me what to do. 
No, 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 not at all. This idea of being consumed is an idea of being chosen by one, by being loved so deeply, so incredibly, so much so that when you stop loving God, he keeps loving you. It's not at all a business negotiation or one of convenience. This is from the depths of his being. And check this out. I'm just, whoo, I'll back away from it as soon as I say it, I promise. But the kind of love that God wants to put in our hearts is is the same love he has. He loves me even when I don't love him. And that's the love God wants to put in my heart so that even if it were possible that God stopped loving me, I would still love God. Why? Because it's in the depths of our heart. It's not, it's not a business transaction. It's not one of, of convenience. It's an all-consuming everything my life is about because from the depths of my control center. Do you see? We have been playing with the symptoms. Hey, stop that. Do that. And God says, if I could just do some heart surgery. Whew. It's... This invitation of Jesus, this greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart is to be all-consuming. Deuteronomy, you lying down, playing soccer, playing volleyball, studying math, whatever it is, it's to, to be colored with this vision of loving God with all of our hearts, being consumed. Last week, we talked about that consuming I want to invite you to to just another aspect of this love. And that is that it's permanent. It's all-consuming permanently. That is, God is all-consumed with you and he will be consumed with you through ever, forever, through the ceaseless ages of the years that go by in eternity. God will be consumed with you. This is not something where he's just a plot to, I want to win this great controversy, move my players here, get more people, get bigger churches, get more people. Not at all. He's permanently never changing. And we're going to finish. We're coming right back to that. But let me just, let me take a time out here. And just, we've got to talk about that that second commandment, the second greatest commandment. We'll just remember, if we were to put that first one as frontlets, as, as lenses through which we see everything and everyone, we would love everyone else. Uh, that love your neighbor line, it flies in the face of my individualistic approach to life, my rights, what I want. That's what we talk about. That's what we talk about a lot. We spend a lot of time talking about our rights, my rights, my rights, and the government can't take my rights. Fair enough. Fair enough. But if the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, it seems like the church that follows Jesus would talk a lot more about their neighbor's rights. Yeah, I understand. I see the world as you see it through my individual preferences. I see the world in comparison to me. I 
I see you in comparison to me. I can see it no other way. But apparently there's a way by being consumed with Jesus and a relationship with Jesus and in love with Jesus and accepting his chosenness that would allow me to see you as I see me. I don't know how to do that. It's impossible for me to walk in your shoes or to sit in your seat. I can't do it. Come on. Tell me if this, uh, if this doesn't happen to you. Maybe it's, maybe it's about something totally different. But tell me this doesn't ever resonate with you. When I see someone driving an expensive car, I find myself thinking, she's probably, she probably has too much mom, money and she's probably very materialistic. When I see someone driving an older or worse car than me, I'm inclined to think that they're somebody that's not as successful as I am. Come on, do you resonate or not? Wait a minute, there, ooh, ooh. As the comedian George Carlin put it, and he put it crudely, but let me just read it exactly as he put it. Everyone who drives faster than I, I do is a moron, and everyone who drives slower than I do is an idiot. That's how we see the world. You're faster than me, you're foolish. I hope you get pulled over. You're slower than me, you gotta get off the road or learn to drive. I drive the perfect speed always and ever. That's how we see life. My speed in life, my perspective in life, my preferences in life. And you, you are either an idiot or a moron if you disagree. Oh, God save us from this. Desire of Ages, page 607. Commentating on this command, this great command of Jesus, only as we love God supremely. That's the, with all of our hearts comment. Is it possible to love our neighbor impartially? You cannot seek justice for the world in its fullness without a heart in love with Jesus. All right, I told you it was just a, just a timeout. Now we're going back. Mark chapter 7, verse 29. I put it on the screen for you. The most important one. You got it still in your Bibles? Great. Jesus answered, the most important one is, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind, and with all your strength. Why? Why is this first? Because loving your neighbor as yourself is not important? No, because this must must consume us. And then from this will flow a love for a, every other person, the moron and the idiot. And I promise that'll be the last time I say that. But do you get it? To the person who hurts you, you and I would be able to pray a prayer of forgiveness for. When we have the first and the greatest, when the priority is right, will flow from this community, a community in love with Jesus. Not how do I protect my rights, but how do I love the rights of the world around me? How do I give them more rights? How do I support their rights? When Jesus says this, when Deuteronomy unpacks this, it's because this is heaven's permanent position. This is heaven's business model, as it were. Let's talk business. This is heaven's business model. If we can do A, 
love God with all of our hearts, then B will, will happen that the, the world will be loved. And that's the goal of heaven. The business model of heaven is that everyone on this planet would experience the love of God. Even those who hate the idea. Last week, I put on the screen for you the wedding vows, traditional vows. Will you, Michael in my case, take Melanie to be your wife? To live together in holy marriage, will you love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? That's the commitment. And what we noted, what we noted is that in no marriage ceremony ever ought the I do to mean one thing for, for one side and another for the other side. In other words, when you have two groups coming together in a love covenant, the vow of one should not be qualitatively different than the vow of the other. Husband is to do for the wife, and that's why the vow is repeated then back to the wife. So it is, if we take the greatest commandment as heaven's vows for us. Are you willing to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul? It is because heaven is returning that vow, expressing the same vow back. Heaven will love you with all of its heart and all of its mind and all of its soul. By asking us to commit, God himself is disclosing his commitment. Amen. Hallelujah. By asking us to enter into this full-hearted commitment of love and to see the world through that love. The man on the middle cross with a broken heart is revealing his commitment to us. Matthew 22 and, John, and, and Mark 12 are both heaven's commitment to you in the invitation for you to commit back. We are asked to commit nothing to God that he has not committed to you. Oh, I wish I could say it a thousand more times. He loves you. He is faithful only to you, forsaking all others. That's a love that only God has where he can love you and love you and love you and love you and love me as if we were the only one. 1 John 4, 19. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. The commitment to love God with all of our hearts was first extended by God. He loved us with all of his heart. And it is both all-consuming. When you want to talk to the angels, if we could, if we could bring up a panel of angels and say, angels, what do you guys talk about in heaven? Oh, we talk about this, talk about, what does God talk about? Oh, it's you. It's only, she just talks about you. That's all he talks about. He's consumed with you. You've heard the story, no doubt. 
You've heard the story of the wife who's complaining to her, her husband. You, you never say you love me anymore. 45 years ago, you, you said you, you loved me when we got married, and you just don't do it anymore. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with us? What does he say as he kind of raises one eyebrow? He said, I told you 45 years ago, I love you. And I'll let you know when that changes. <laughs> but that's not God. That's not how God works at all. He has loved us permanently. He's never changed. He's never changed. As Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I do searches all the time. All the time. Just to, just to find out uh, different kind of top 10s, top 25s. I do that in, uh, in Bible verses. What's the top 10 verses on this, on the Sabbath? What's the top 10? What's the top verse? And, and inevitably, Google will pull up the top 10 or the top 12, top 14, sometimes top 15, top 25. Usually it's the top 25. That's about it. But when you Google, give me the top 10, top verses on the everlasting love of God, the first hits are the top 100 verses, top 100 verses, top 100 verses. Apparently, the compilers had a hard time coming up with just a few. God repeats himself over and over and over. He is not the husband of 45 years saying, hey, I'll let you know if it changes. Of course I love you. I'll let you know if it changes. No, God says, I'm going to let you know, and I'm going to let you know, and I'm going to let you know, and this morning I'm going to fling that creation in front of you. I'm going to let you know. So when God says, hey, I want, I want you to love me with all of your heart. I want my heart to change your heart so that you can have this love that loves even when someone doesn't love you back. It's, a, it's in the depths of your being. It's a permanent fixture of who you are. It doesn't matter if you wake up in a bad mood. And I don't know how moods happen, but there's days that you just wake up. I just wake up and I'm like, I'm in a bad mood. What happened? Nothing happened. I went to bed last night. Ate a bowl of Cheerios, whatever, went to bed, and I'm in a bad mood. God's love doesn't ebb and flow like that. He's saying it over and over and over. I love you. I'm not changing it. I love you. I'm not changing it. It is permanent. And he's inviting us into that kind of relationship. Ah. All right, one more story, and we're, we're done. This is, a, this is a doozy of a story, though. Let me pull it out for you. It's a story of Georgine Martin and Jerry Zimmerman, all right? Georgine is now 51 years old, living up in Wisconsin, when at her office one day she receives a bouquet of red roses. Hmm. Her husband had died sometime earlier, so she had been living alone. And she said, well, who's sending me red roses? Well, in the red roses is now this note. So she pulls it out. It's from a Jerry Zimmerman. Who is that? Who is that? She's thinking, tick, 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 tick. I, I kind of remember. There's something. Well, the, the, the note reads, Dear, dear Georgine, I was a classmate of yours, though I don't believe you knew who I was. 
I was painfully shy, but you were the prettiest girl I had ever seen. It was true. She couldn't pull up his name. Who? Jerry, 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 Jerry. Four decades. I mean, she's, she's 51 years old. She can't remember her junior high classmates. Jerry Zimmerman. Well, the note goes on. I live in, in D.C. now, but I have close ties to my hometown here in Wisconsin, and I was here visiting when I heard about the loss of your husband. I'm sorry. If this approach comes too soon, I will understand and wait another 40 years. <laughs> but if it's the right time, I'd like to have coffee with you when I'm in town next. Woo! I'll wait for your reply. The letter closes. So Georgine decides, you know, I, I, why not? I, why not have coffee with an old junior high classmate? And so she sends him a letter. Meanwhile, back in D.C. where Jerry now lives, he's anxiously checking his mailbox every day. Ooh, please, could it be today? He was elated when the answer finally came in a short note that said, yes, next time you're in town, I'd love to have coffee with you. Well, here's the story. Jerry's interest in Georgine began when he noticed her back in junior high, eighth grade. Her eyes sparkling gave him a euphoric jolt whenever, whenever they glanced, albeit fleetingly, at him. Jerry's shyness prevented him from saying a single word to her until their junior year in high school. Now, a newly minted driver, Jerry was on his way to school one morning when he spotted Georgine walking with a friend. Before he could talk himself out of it, he pulled over, asked the girls if they wanted a ride. They did. The friends climbed into the front seat with Georgine sitting right next to him. The beautiful girl he had been pining for was sitting just inches away, and it petrified him. Unable to think of anything to say to break the ice, Jerry didn't even introduce himself, just drove in complete silence. We've all been there. You get to school, the passengers thank, <laughs> thank their silent chauffeur and went their way. Jerry spent all day, all day, if, if the girls only knew what they did to boys, all day mulling over his next move. His plan was simple. After school, he would drive around until he saw Georgine walking home. Then, just as he had done that morning, he would offer her a ride. She would accept, sit next to him again, and that would be that, and he thought heavily, happily ever after. When the last bell rang, Jerry raced to the parking lot, started driving around school. He soon found Georgine walking with the same girl from that morning. Jerry pulled over, rolled down the window. Fancy another ride? Georgine looked at him with a wave. No, no thanks. We're going to walk. No, this hadn't been part of his plan. He couldn't believe it. He had no B option. What does he do? He thought of them, the three of them, as good friends from their earlier ride. He was devastated. He rolled up his window and went his way. It only got worse the following year, their senior year. He learned that Georgine was engaged. Ah, he'd lost her forever. As way leads to way, after high school, Jerry got a job delivering and then working and then moving and then working for the government, finally landing him in Washington, D.C. But he would go back to the little town in Wisconsin, visit some of his high school friends and his family. One visit 
now 40 years later. He's visiting with his friend, Frank Cooper. And Frank t- says to him, hey, do you remember Georgine? <sighs> Did he ever? I do. Have you seen her lately? No. Her husband died this past year. All right. Hours later, he's at a local florist writing the note and ordering the flowers. Perhaps it's not how Hollywood would have scripted their reunion. But on his next visit to town, he had coffee with Georgine. That was the first yes. Then he asked her if he could see her again, and she said yes again. Now with one no and two yeses in 40 years, Months later, he asked her as they walked along the lake, Michigan, would would you marry me? And if not, I'll wait. I'll wait as long as it takes. Well, he didn't have to wait. Put her picture on the screen. This was 40 years earlier, the the, the high school girl that he watched from a distance. Georgine, 40 years later, became his wife. (laughs) Come on. 40 years. It's a long time to wait. Except for love. God isn't going anywhere. God is equal to his own commandment. When he says, hey, I want... I want you to love me with all your heart. It's an all-consuming love. It's a permanent love. It doesn't go anywhere. God is, in in a sense, responding to us, saying, I am loving you with an all-consuming love. I am loving you with a permanent love. I am going nowhere. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For while we were unknown, while we had no knowledge of God, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled, we were chosen, To him, through the death of his son, we were loved by God, even when we didn't know he existed. It's Georgine and Jerry all over again. The man on the middle cross with the broken heart is what he's asking us to be, is himself that to us, a permanent, all-consuming love. The last line here as I invite the worship leaders up. His broken heart, the broken heart of God, can and will change your heart. Beloved, I I can't come before you admitting that I have what God has asked me to have. There are days. But that's why God isn't looking for a business transaction or one of convenience. He's looking to change us from the depths of our heart to alter even if needed our DNA. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. God wants to alter your DNA, not through a vaccine, but by coming into contact with his heart, he wants to change the very depths, the very makeup of who you are. And that's why this theme song, that's why we're singing this song every the end of every worship service this fall. Not I, but through Christ in me, I can be changed. 
I can be made into the image of Jesus and love like he loves me. We have the connect cards in the pews, the connect number. We wish you would take advantage of that. If you're a first time guest here, we want to hear from you. We've got a gift we'd like to drop you in the mail. But you let us know, hey, I was a, I was a guest here. Something that we can do uh, to pray for you, to work with you. That's what this community is all about. During our theme song, the ushers are going to collect our offering, our tithes and our offering. But may these words ring deep and true. Not I, but through Christ.
and to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.